some things in life naturally go together. Peanut butter and jelly, milk and cookies, jeans and boots. But what about snow, lots of it, and thoroughbred racing? For a few weekends in February, white turf, as it's called, is quite the thing to do. We'll chat with someone who's done it. Plus, it's festivist for horse players. Yeah, yeah, I know the holidays have passed. You'll understand what we mean on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a hit bobbing finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on the pink podcatcher app that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Starting this past December 30th, Aqueduct Racecourse in New York canceled part or all of its race card for nine straight days due to inclement weather, mostly snow and extreme cold. Parks in Philadelphia's lost five days since Christmas. You would expect that kind of caution everywhere, but especially where winter racing happens. Yet, for three Sundays every February, horsemen break virtually every rule in the book to stage one of the most well-known and unique events of its kind anywhere in the world. It's called White Turf, and it happens in the ski resort haven of San Moritz, Switzerland, where the average February high temperature is 32 degrees and the average low is 5 above. Literally, white turf is thoroughbreds racing on a straight course over a frozen snow-covered lake. Yes, lake, as in ice. They run standard-type races at full gallop, as well as hurdles, what look like standard-bred races but with a sleigh instead of a sulky, and are you ready for this? Something called skioring, where a rider on skis is pulled along by an unsaddled thoroughbred. It looks like water skiing behind a racehorse. As you can imagine, that's a real fan favorite there. The 111th season of White Turf begins on February 4th. To get some perspective on what the whole White Turf scene is like, we welcome in someone who's participated in it in the past, and that's British jockey Robert Havlin, who joins us here on In The Gate. What's it like to be at this thing? I mean, obviously, it's unique, you know, you... There's there's nothing like it in the world, barring San Moritz, and it's been going for you know as long as time can remember back in Switzerland. So uh, yeah, it's a unique festival and uh, very elitist, you know. What is it like for the jockeys in terms of the temperature and the wind? Well, I mean, I've ridden in it over the last fifteen years. Uh, I haven't missed many meetings there, and I've I've uh, experienced all types of weather. I mean, when it's been really really cold with the wind. That's when that's when it gets cold when there's a when there's a wind, and uh, you know I've had frostbite on my knuckles even though I've had uh, gloves on you know, but then there's the other extreme where last year it was so warm that they had to abandon the the races because um the the, the ice and the, the snow was just melting you know so I think global warming's got a little bit to do with it. Well, it looked pretty hot with probably a lot of high end shopping and all the trappings of a resort brought outside. Do you get to? enjoy any of that while you're there 
you know, it's nice to go for dinner the night before, but uh, usually I'm quite busy in the UK, so it's normally a flying visit, you know. I'll be riding domestically in, in England on the Saturday and catch a flight to Zurich and then travel up to Zurich, either by, uh, travel up to San Maritz, either by train or by car, which is uh, about two and a half hours. So I ride on the Sunday and then and, uh, <clears throat> if I'm lucky, I can stay the Sunday night and if I'm not busy on the Monday, but uh, most of the time I'm back in the Sunday night to Zurich and catching the first flight back to London on uh, Monday morning. I guess the big question is how safe is that sort of thing for the horses? Well, I mean, listen, every sport, an extreme sport, there's obviously a, a level of risk. But what they actually have studs in their shoes, the specially designed shoes. So it's a bit different when you're riding on grass. Uh, you, when you're riding on snow or ice, you, when you're turning the bend, you can feel the, the horse's feet moving. Now, if that was on turf, you would think, well, I'm going to slip over now. But they actually, it'd be as if you kicked your heel into the snow, it would move significantly before it compact against each other and then you would get a push off it so it's kind of it's weird trying to train your brain to accept that uh, you know that you're not going to fall over but um i mean fallers are fallers are very rare now we started to allude to this a little bit but how do you as a jockey dress differently for an event like this well i've got uh, thermal breeches which i wear Obviously, the gloves I wear will be a bit thicker, but the most important piece of equipment you have is a face mask, which is similar to a, a paintball mask or a BMX, a mountain bike full face mask. So you'll have that covering your full face because obviously you don't want some a machine fire and snowball that get full pelt, and, and that's what it feels like sometimes, you know. Oh, my goodness. Now, I know you said <laughs> that you were pretty much just in and out, but... If you watch videos of this event online, as I have, I see that this draws a pretty good crowd, something like 35,000 people, and it looks like a lot of those fancy people are out in the elements. I mean, are they really eating salmon and drinking champagne in a snowstorm, or are there fancy tents or chalets? How does it work? Yeah, there is tents, but um, most of the time you get nice sunshine up there. And uh, I mean, it's just like any ski resort. You, nobody likes going out and, and skiing when it's snowing and, and blizzardy. But there are some lovely uh, hospitality tents there, and most of the champagne bars are, are outside. And I mean, I think they've been lucky with the with the elements over the years that you know that time of the year there's a nice skiing weather. I mean, it's obviously going to be a ski resort, so it's nice skiing weather, and there's plenty of fur coats on show. I'm sure. Now, who are all these horsemen, the owners, trainers, and you guys, the jockeys, who participate? Well, there's uh, some Swiss horses go up there, majority of Swiss horses. Over the years, there's been quite a, a number of horses traveled from the UK. There's got a lot of German horses go there. And um, basically, that's probably the, the, the main set of countries that contribute to the runners, to Samaritz. Jockey Robert Havlin joining us here on In the Gate. He's a veteran of the white turf races, which happen on the first three Sundays of February in San Moritz, Switzerland. Now, are these registered thoroughbreds who race in more standard type settings the rest of the year? Oh yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, um, these the horses that are coming from the UK have been running uh, in preparation races in, in England up until um, you know San Moritz to get them ready for San Moritz. And same as the, the, the German horses, uh, Peter Schiergen, who's champion trainer in Germany, has runners there. 
um, in the past. Uh, Mark Johnson, who's been champion trainer in England, he's had runners there. So yeah, they're, they're um, proper thoroughbreds, and um, by no means uh, your your cattle horse from down the street. <laughs> now there are flat races, hurdles, what look like standard bread type races with horses pulling sleighs, you know, like Santa Claus and the reindeer, and then that whole skioring thing. I mean, do you as a jockey participate in all of those races or just the flat races? Oh, just the flat races. You couldn't give me all the money in China to, uh, or the team China to go on the skioring race. <laughs> it's a great, great to watch, but uh, I've seen some fallers, and it's never the horses that fall. It's always the the, uh, the skiers behind um, usually collide them with one another, but it's uh, some spectacle to watch. So who are the riders for these other types of races? Obviously, that's elitist, you know, like... Uh, it only happens in, in San Moritz at that time of the year, so it's not something that somebody can build a career out of. But some guys there that have been doing that for, for years and years, and we can tell the, the good ones and the, and the bad ones, but they're usually pretty pretty uh, good skiers, you know. So these are just ordinary people who help stage this event by guiding the horses? Yeah, they, 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 have, uh, they usually own the horses themselves. Normally, I've found it's normally the same people every year that, that can ride and, uh, sorry, well, ski in that race. So, I mean, I don't know where you're going to train for it because uh, you wouldn't, it's not really got the facilities on any any ski slope that I've seen for, for horses dragging skiers around the place. But, uh, yeah, normally it's been the same people that I've seen for years and years, and they've obviously just mastered it over the years. To give you an idea of the prize money available, the top race of the meet on the final day is a thoroughbred flat race, the Grand Prix of San Moritz, which is about a mile and an eighth. It's worth over $100,000. Entries for the Grand Prix came from England, France, Germany, and, of course, Switzerland. So what type of horses run a race like that? Are we talking horses that we could see in European stakes races later in the year? Yeah, um, certainly the horse I'm riding, he was placed in a very good handicap at the back end of the year in, in England. But, uh, you know, you'll you have listed horses running in that race, you know, stakes horses. So they're of a higher level than of previous years. It seems to have been getting better and better every year. So who is your horse? Uh, I'm riding, well, I've got one or two horses to ride, but uh, the John Best horses, Edelston Hall, so uh, I'll be I'll probably ride him. He he ran in um in Doncaster in the November handicap. But it, the horses you need really, I suppose you could liken it to your your dirt tracks because they they go quick, they go very fast because they kick back severe. So everybody wants to be handy on the pace, and uh, you really need a speed horse that can stay well. You know, that can stay strongly. The 111th season of White Turf Races begins on February 4th. Robert Havlin, thank you so much for joining us to talk about it. Stay warm out there. I will try my best, Barry. Thank you very much. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, it's Festivus for Horse Players. You'll understand what we mean after the break. Welcome back to the In The Gate podcast. How many times have you heard the phrase, it's the little things that make the difference? A little change can make a big difference in a company's bottom line. People who bet on horse racing pumped almost $11 billion into the sports economy in 2017. 
So keeping horse players happy is a fairly important thing to do. Recently, at a meeting of the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission's Rules Committee, the vice chairman John Roach brought up before the group a number of issues raised by a professional horse player who had spoken with other horse players to come up with a list of grievances, so to speak. And these are some issues that seem fairly simple to execute, but they really haven't been done on a wide scale. Frank Angst of the Blood Horse recently wrote about this situation, which I guess was something akin to Festivus, you know, the holiday for the rest of us, whose traditions include the airing of grievances. And Frank Angst's nice enough to share a belated Festivus with us here on In the Gate. Now, one issue brought up by this horse player to the vice chairman, who then brought it before the commission, is providing the odds of each horse all the way through the race, the load into the gate, start, and through the end of the race. How big an issue is this that odds can change right before the race because of computers making big wagers and things like that? To me, it's always a big issue if you have some core players that think it's a big issue. And uh, the guys involved, one of them is a professional horse player, uh, Mike Maloney, and he went and talked with some other horse players before uh, he's the one that actually wrote it up. But he did get input from some other horse players. And, uh, I mean, these are people that put a lot of money through the windows for sure. So they think it's important to just see those odds the whole time. If there is a late drop, I don't think they necessarily think there's anything right or wrong either way, but I think they, they just do want to see what's happening in the uh, in the races that they're betting on. I would think that probably matters a little bit more at smaller tracks where there are lower pools, you know, less money in the pool. I, I would think at a place like Belmont, Santa Anita, you probably aren't going to get a big odds change right before a race. Well, you would be surprised. I mean, that that's what you would think uh, intuitively, but the the thing is, is there are now computer players out there and what i mean by that is they use computers not just to calculate who they think they're going to win but these are algorithms set up and it allows them to bet thousands of bets in an instant and they tend to be the last ones in the pools and so they can really fluctuate odds at major tracks because they are by some estimates of experts that i've talked to they account for one out of every $5 bet on the North American racing. And here's the thing. Their models don't really work at small enough tracks because there's not enough liquidity. So they're not going to be in a track like River Downs or Mahoning Valley or something like that. They play at a bigger track. So you're looking at Naira, Gulfstream, Southern California. That That's where these guys play. So they can fluctuate odds quite a bit. It was only a couple of days after I wrote that story that I was watching a race at Gulfstream and a horse left the gate at 13 to one. The first flash of the odds in the first turn, he was 13 to one coming out of the first turn. He was seven to one. And from everything that I've written and experts I've talked to, I would account for that by a huge computer wager uh, firing on that horse. In fact, it was probably two of the major computer groups that both landing on that horse is what I would suspect drop that horse by that much money uh, that late before the race. And, and what happens, I should explain, is like these bets are made before the race. It takes some time for the tracks to calculate them so the gates can open and it's still calculating what the odds are. And that's what, that's what accounts for that changing during the race. Obviously, that's not always a good look with horse players 
makes you think kind of what's going on. But that that's been the explanation uh, for the late odds drops. Wow, that is rather eye-opening. Another issue brought before the commission for them to think about was to mandate mandate track simulcast feeds replaying a full pan view, you know, the main angle used to follow the race, as well as a full head-on view for each race. How necessary do you think that is? I mean, serious horse players, they, they want to re- watch that race replay and take notes at that moment for for horses going forward that they might be looking to bet back in their next race and, and see what happens. I mean, I, I haven't seen that come up a whole lot, uh, but in talking with the, with Mike, he, he said that sometimes when a winter circle ceremony runs long or there's been a long inquiry, they, they might not show one of the two views. Uh, the head-on, he said, a lot too often gets dropped. Would it be satisfactory to have those on the internet, say at Equibase or Horse Races Now or something like that, as opposed to the live simulcast show, if you will? Now, in general, uh, most of those replays are available. You can go back. Like if you have an account at any of the major ADWs, for instance, they usually have pan view, which is the the traditional side view, and then, and the head-on replay. Those typically are available t- to watch again. But I think what he, what they're getting at is, hey, we're here, we're playing the races. This is information that we want going forward, and we're ready to watch it now. And you have it now, so let's put an emphasis on showing it uh, right away. After all, there's about a half hour between every race. There's plenty of time to show it, it would seem. We're talking with Frank Angst of the Blood Horse here on In the Gate. Can't believe we haven't had Frank Angst on before. Now, a third consideration that this professional horse player mentioned to the KHRC vice chairman, in which the vice chairman then relayed to the commission, is the reporting of a horse who has been gelded and would now be running for the first time as a gelding. The thought was made to require listing the date of the surgery rather than the date the surgery just happened to be reported. What kind of difference do you think that would make? You know, there's been actually quite a bit of progress made just in reporting first-time geldings on any level. Previously, just a horse would seem to magically change uh, from colt to gelding, and unless you heard in an announcement at the track, you, you, and especially if you're playing in simulcast land, there was a pretty good chance that you might have not noted that change. As a handicapper myself, on a very small level, I don't put a huge emphasis on it. But uh, you know what? I think what players are looking for is if, if form suddenly changed, maybe this played a part in it. So if they if they know the actual date that the surgery occurred, they can look at workouts and race performances from that date, as opposed to just when it was reported to Equibase or anyone else that would have recorded that. That doesn't necessarily tell you how far to look back to see if there's been a form reversal of any kind and also the topic of accurate reporting of workouts came up now vice chairman john roach relayed horse player sentiments that kentucky should become a leader in reporting workout times are workout times not reported accurately i don't understand that one yeah i mean i think that there's some concern that just sometimes a workout is missed especially workouts at private training centers um, as opposed to the racetracks. I think that's where some of the concern is. So if, if these training centers are licensed to report workouts, they just feel like let's, 
let's do all we can to make sure that we get the most accurate information on this. Well, I forgot how it all turned out on Seinfeld with the airing of grievances on Festivus, but perhaps this will actually lead to some actionable change in the horse racing industry. So thank you so much, Frank Angst, for uh, helping us out with this. Sure, anytime. Our thanks to Frank Angst and to Robert Havlin. He was there in September and early November to witness his son's runs to glory when Florent Giroux climbed aboard Gunrunner's back his dad, Dominique, watched knowingly, as only a former jockey could, as the son told the big horse it was time to mount their attack. Florent Giroux experienced a lifetime of great moments in a 72-hour span that would begin when he walked on stage as Gunrunner was being recognized with the highest honor a thoroughbred can win. The very next morning, Florent Giroux flew from Miami to Chicago, where he culminated a long-awaited goal of passing his immigration test and becoming a U.S. citizen, then back to Miami, and from the difficult 10-hole, Giroux led Gunrunner one more time to win the richest horse race, but this time something didn't feel the same, for Dominique had passed away three days before New Year's, he has a new vantage point to witness his son's fame. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us on the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.